Well, it was August of 1963 that Cassius Clay, a boxer who would later be known as Muhammad Ali, released an album entitled, I Am the Greatest. It was nominated for a Grammy Award and is viewed as a, a precursor to the uh, more recent hip-hop and, and rap music. It was actually a comedy album that included some tongue-in-cheek declarations such as the fact that he would beat the little green men from Venus to become not only world champion but universe champion. But it also clearly gave a window into what Clay thought of himself. He believed himself to be the greatest. Six months later, at the age of 22, he would defeat Sonny Liston to become heavyweight champion, and at least in his mind and many others, to affirm that reality. You know, Clay was not the first person in the world to believe or to declare, I am the greatest. Well, not everyone releases an album by that title. Every human heart is inclined to that same pride and self-centeredness. Every sinner wants to be great in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. But what does it mean to be great? Muhammad Ali may well be the best boxer of all time, but from Christ's perspective, he most certainly is not the greatest. Last week, we began to consider this text in Mark that defines greatness for us as believers. The world and our sinful flesh would have us believe one definition of greatness, but Jesus clearly teaches and models another. And so we are seeing greatness redefined in Mark 10, 35 to 45. Now last week, if you were with us, we focused on verses 35 to 41 and saw worldly greatness depicted in the example of James and John as we observed their self-centered ambition. You recall that this took place as Jesus and His disciples were headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus had made it clear in the preceding verses that there in Jerusalem He will die and then be raised from the dead. Now, in spite of Jesus telling them this on multiple occasions, the disciples didn't get it. They, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but their hope and expectation was still that soon Jesus would establish His earthly kingdom. And they were excited about that kingdom. They were particularly excited about what that kingdom would mean for them. For in spite of Jesus' prior teaching and example, they were still thinking with a worldly mindset about greatness as they were characterized by a self-centered ambition. We saw first how their self-centeredness was demonstrated in a subtle sense of entitlement. In verse 35, it says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They thought they deserved a blank check from Jesus. After all, they had been faithful followers from the early days of His ministry, and they were family, likely Jesus' cousins. They'd already enjoyed a privileged position among the disciples, so they thought, who could be more deserving than us? Isn't that endemic to every fallen human heart? We deserve it. Now, if you know the Scriptures and the Gospel, you know that we really deserve only God's wrath and His judgment, and yet we can feel entitled to so much more. 
James and John certainly did, and this sense of entitlement led to a selfish pursuit of prominence. Verse 36, Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. They at least believed Jesus was the Messiah and that he would reign. That was commendable. But they were focused on their own positions of honor, authority, and influence. They weren't primarily thinking about Jesus as he neared death. They were thinking about themselves. Now, we can easily be hard on these men, and and to a degree they deserve that, but we can also be just like them, can't we? Selfishly pursuing our own gain. Well, Jesus responded and highlighted another expression or symptom of self-centered ambition depicted in this text, which was a surprising disregard of instruction. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You know, their request was shocking because of its selfishness, but also because they should have known better. The disciples had missed Jesus' teaching and example about greatness and about self-centered ambition, and, and they failed to understand or embrace what Jesus was telling them was coming, what was going to happen, in large part because it didn't fit the narrative of what they wanted for their future. Their self-centeredness and desire for personal glory really clogged their ears to the instruction of Christ. It also led them to forthly a shameful declaration of overconfidence. Jesus said to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? He asked them, are you able to suffer with me? And they responded and they said, we are able, absolutely. We can do this. They had supreme confidence in themselves a misplaced confidence, as will clearly be demonstrated when they would scatter at the, at the arrest of Jesus. Now, their self-centered ambition and pursuit of prominence also betrayed a stressed discounting of providence. Jesus said to them, that cup which I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, but to sit on my right or my left This is not mine to give, but for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus said, you will follow me. You will suffer. You'll learn some humility first. But though you suffer with me, it's not your decision or even my decision who sits at my right and left. Rather, it is for those for whom God has prepared it. He wasn't just saying, it's it's not my decision. Sorry, you'll have to ask the Father. There was a larger point he was making. Their self-centered ambition led them to be hyper-focused on the future they wanted, on the outcome they desired, their personal prominence and success. And Jesus is calling on them to, to trust God with their future and simply to strive to be faithful. God certainly gives us responsibility to make choices, and as we acknowledged last week, there is a right, godly ambition but we must rest in the providence of God rather than frantically seeking to bring about our desired ends. And lastly, we saw their self-centered ambition produce the significant harm of relationship. Verse 41 said, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They were angry because they too wanted that 
position of prominence. What do you get when you have multiple people who are selfishly ambition? You get jealousy, backbiting, discord. That's what selfish ambition produces. And that's where we left the disciples last week, mad at each other because they all wanted the glory. A clear depiction of the world's idea of greatness. Let's pick up and read verses 42 to 45 that we'll focus on this morning. It says, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, having once again witnessed the self-centered ambition of the disciples and their desire for worldly greatness, called them to himself. He he intentionally gathered them to instruct them and, and so to instruct us. And in these verses, Jesus redefines greatness as we see kingdom greatness defined as self-sacrificing service. First, Jesus gives the clear contrast of self-sacrificing service. What Jesus is calling them to and us to stands out as very different than what we see in the world around us. He said in verse 42, you know. He says, what I am telling you is obvious. You won't argue with me on this point. It's clear when you look at the world around you. What is it that's obvious? He says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. He says, you know something about those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't simply say, you know something about those who are rulers of the Gentiles. He says those who are recognized as rulers. The ESV and the New King James Version translated it, those who are considered rulers. The NIV, those who are regarded as rulers. Now, it's possible that Jesus was simply acknowledging that the world leaders are recognized as such by others. But it's also possible that Jesus is making a more subtle point about earthly rulers. He may be highlighting the fact that they don't ultimately rule. Only God rules and reigns. Jesus would point this out to one of those earthly rulers in John 19, verses 10 and 11, when he was interacting with Pilate after his arrest. You may remember where Pilate said in verse 10, you do not speak to me. Jesus wasn't responding. He said, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered and said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate said, don't you know I have authority? Don't you recognize the authority I have over your life and your death? 
And Jesus says, you would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. He says those who are recognized as rulers, those who are considered rulers, those who seem to be rulers, but ultimately God is the only one who rules and reigns in an ultimate sense. Well, these who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, worldly rulers, what do they do? He says they lord it over them. And then he makes a a synonymous parallel statement, basically saying the same thing again to help us understand it more clearly, that their great men exercise authority over them. The rulers or the, the great men of the world lord it over and exercise authority over them. Now, before we consider what Jesus is saying here, it's important that we recognize that Jesus is not bashing the idea of authority, nor is he undermining the reality of, of human authorities or human rulers. We understand that God is the ultimate authority, but he has established and delegated limited authority to people in different spheres and contexts. Second Chronicles 20 verse 6 says this of God, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. God is the ultimate authority over all. But God has established human authorities. In his design, he has intended the world to function under various authorities. We see this in the realm of government. Romans 13 verse 1 says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God says, I'm the one who established the governing authorities, and, and you are to submit to them, recognizing that as an act of submission to me. That's why Titus 3.1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. We see this human authority established in the family as well. Paul writes of husbands in Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. We see it with parents and their children in Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. God has established authority structures in the home. We see this in the church as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. God has established elders to oversee the church as authority. So the issue is not that there are those who have authority over others. That is God's design, and he established those authorities generally, and he places specific individuals into those positions of authority. The issue is that being in that position is not the definition of greatness, and the issue is how those authorities use their authority in the pursuit of greatness. Notice how these 
worldly authorities, the norm for how authorities function. He says, you know those who are recognized as rulers, lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. This first phrase, lord it over them, means to exercise control or dominion in a way that is uh, oppressive and selfish. Acts 19.16 uses this same word in a, a different context. It's of a man who had an evil spirit, and it says he leaped on them and subdued all of them. That's that word. He subdued them. This is not a, a generous, kind, selfless leadership. This is lording it over, viewing the people that you lead as subject to you for your benefit. 1 Peter 5.3 says there's no place for this in godly leadership. Elders are to lead not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Leadership does involve influence, but it doesn't involve lording it over. It says their great men also exercise authority over them. Again, this is not the, the normal word that is used for authority in a, a positive sense. It's used only here and in the parallel passage, Matthew 20, 25 in the New Testament, and it's rarely used in secular Greek. It's a, a, a compound word that, that clearly indicates the misuse of the authority of one's office, the misuse of authority in a self-centered, domineering manner. And this is clearly the norm. He says, you know this. You don't have to think too hard to find the rulers and great men of the world using their authority in this way to their own selfish ends. That was true of the disciples. None of them raised their hand at this point in Jesus' message and said, you know, I'm not sure about that. I think the Roman leaders to me seem very benevolent and gracious. Herod, the Herodian, you know, they, they're always looking out for our best interest in mind. They didn't say that. Why? Because this is the norm. This is what human authorities, worldly authorities in their own pursuit of greatness do. We see that today, whether from governmental authorities, not saying there aren't those who are good, men of high character who are serving with the best interest of others, but that's not the norm. Even bosses at work or homes of unbelievers or the ungodly where parents or, or husbands are utilizing their authority for their own gain, domineering instead of serving others. This is what the world thinks is greatness, the ability to get others to do what you want. But Jesus says, no, regardless of what the world thinks and models, regardless of what is commonplace in the world around us, greatness is not found in having a position of authority nor is it found in exercising that authority for one's own gain. Rather, in contrast to this worldly model of greatness, Jesus instructs the disciples in the kingdom priority of self-sacrificing service. Look at verse 43, he says, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. He says, but it's not this way among you. Notice again the careful wording that he uses. He doesn't say it shouldn't be this way among you. He says it isn't this way among you. 
Now, you might read that and think, well, did he not just notice the disciples' interaction immediately preceding this? This was not how the disciples were functioning. They, they were doing exactly what the worldly leaders do. Jesus doesn't mean that his disciples always practice this. Clearly, they don't and didn't. But he's saying, this is how it works in my kingdom. My kingdom, greatness is not defined that way. Greatness is not pursued that way. You might assume he would say something in contrast to the self-centered rulers of this world, that the rulers and great men in the kingdom, they're good and fair and not self-centered and domineering, but he doesn't. You see, he doesn't want his disciples, nor does he want us, to think greatness is tied to a position of authority. That's what James and John thought. They thought we could be great if we just had those particular positions of prominence. That's what the world thinks. The great ones throughout history are who? They're the ones who had the power, who, who could get what they wanted. Whether that power was political or economic, that's who the world sees as great. Jesus says greatness in the kingdom is tied to a position, all right, but it's not that of the master. Rather, it's the position of a servant or a slave. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to want to be great, does he? He doesn't say whoever wishes to be great shouldn't. No, he says whoever wishes to be great needs to understand what that really means. He redefines greatness in a way that is selfless. The ambition of a citizen of the kingdom to be great or to be first is not done in a self-centered way for their own exaltation. It's out of a desire to please Christ, to reflect Him, to bring Him glory as they live according to His design. Again, here Jesus uses two essentially synonymous statements to make one point. He says, you want to be great or, or you want to be first? Here's what you need to do. You need to be a servant. You need to be a slave of all. That word servant that he used in verse 43, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, is the Greek word from which we get the word deacon. Those who served in the church and who led in that service were identified as deacons in the church, not primarily a, a title reflecting their authority, but reflecting their example of this kind of service. It was once used, uh, or primarily used, uh, uh, other than that context in the church, of those who did menial tasks like serving tables or cleaning. It was a, a low hired hand doing all the things that nobody else would want to do. Jesus says, it's the one who serves, not the one who is served, who is great in my kingdom. But not only are we called to have the mentality of a servant, we are called to have the mentality of a slave of all. He says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. A slave was an even lower position than that of a servant. 
A servant was at least free to a degree to make their own decisions, to choose where to work and who to work for, but a slave had no freedom. They were bound to the master's will and desire. It's interesting that Paul regularly referred to himself as a slave of Christ. That's how he viewed Christ. He is my master. All of my will and desires submitted to what he desires for me to do. Jesus says here, those who are great, those who want to be first in the kingdom, view themselves as a slave of all. One commentator writes this. He says, here is the paradox of the kingdom of God. Instead of being lords, its great ones become servants, and its chiefs the bondservants of all. So, beloved, we should pursue greatness in the kingdom but not a self-centered greatness that's focused on our own glory. We should pursue the greatness that Jesus here defines and prioritizes for us. Again, as one commentator writes, greatness in the kingdom of God does not involve public honor and the authority to command others, but humble, unrewarded service. Embrace Christ's kingdom priority of self-sacrificing service. I want you to consider what this would look like for you. In your life, in the day-to-day details of your world, as you go through your day and your week, interacting in the various contexts that you interact with, what does it look like for you to be a servant, to be a slave of all? Now consider your, your home. Maybe it's as a husband walking in from a, a long day of work at the office and you're tired and, and you would prefer just to plop down and watch TV and instead you serve your family by actively engaging in conversation with your kids or your wife about their day. Maybe it's a, a similar scenario as a young dad but being eager to help change diapers or pick up toys or discipline young kids. Maybe it's being willing to do the same tasks day after day in the home, things like laundry and washing dishes when you know, guess what, it's just going to get dirty again and you get to do it again and again, but you do it with a joyful attitude of serving your family and your Lord. Maybe it's actively looking for ways to help around the house and jumping in when you see others working. What about at work? Maybe it's things like helping a coworker when you know your contributions may not be recognized or appreciated or even noticed. Maybe it's working hard at a project even when you don't expect it to make it across the finish line with the customer. Maybe it's cleaning up the break room even though you didn't make the mess. What about here at church? Maybe it's looking for someone to go talk to rather than waiting for someone to come up to you or being willing to serve in in the nursery or pulling weeds or something else that maybe wouldn't be your first choice, but there's a need and you have the capacity to help meet that need. Maybe it's offering to take someone a meal even when it's out of your way or it's an inconvenience, but you know it would be a blessing to them with what they have going on in their life. It's these acts of humble, unrewarded service that Christ says make one great. They're the acts that Christ will one day praise. I want you to turn over to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. 
Jesus highlights the kinds of things that should be characteristic of those who are part of his kingdom. Matthew 25, 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and he will separate the nations, the sheep from the goats. And verse 34 says, then the king will say to those on his right, those who are part of his kingdom, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Jesus is not saying that those who are part of his kingdom will be there having earned their place there by acts of service like this. But he is saying those who are a part of his kingdom will be characterized by acts of service like these. By doing these kinds of menial, mundane, often unrecognized things and doing them for those who are the least of the brethren. Jesus says, this is what is characteristic of those in my kingdom. This is what I will reward. This is what will get you a well done, good and faithful servant when you enter my kingdom. It's not the positions of power and authority. It's not living for your own selfish gain and ambition. It is practicing self-sacrificing service. Well, the fact that Jesus calls us as his disciples to live this way certainly should be all the motivation we need to actively pursue this in every area of our life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues giving us the perfect example of self-sacrificing service. The perfect example of self-sacrificing service. Back in Mark 10, he says this in verse 45. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the perfect example of self-sacrificial service. When we reflect on the service of Christ, it is both our model for service and it motivates us to live in that manner. Jesus highlights first that he served others sacrificially throughout his life. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man, a a messianic title that that described Jesus as the God-man, the promised Messiah, did not come to be served. God did not come in the flesh in order to be served, but to serve. If there ever was anyone who deserved to be served on this planet, it was him. He's God. He's the one who created and sustains all things. Colossians 1.16 says this of him, for by him all things were created 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He deserves to be served, and He will one day be served. Daniel 7, 13, and 14 speaks of this Son of Man, and it, it fast-forwards to the future when the Son of Man will come again, and, and it says that um, to Him will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. That's what Jesus deserves. That's what will happen in the future when Jesus returns. But at His first coming, at His first advent, He did not come to be served, but to serve. Think about that. Jesus' incarnation, His coming as a man, was not about Him coming to be served by mankind, by the creatures He had made, though He certainly deserved that. Rather, it was about Him coming to serve mankind, the creatures that He had made. He came to serve. Jesus is connecting this back to what He called His disciples to do when He said, you are to be a servant. This is the verb form of that word. And this is clear from the beginning of Jesus' coming. He came not to be served. He wasn't born to great fanfare. You know, Jesus didn't grow up in a palace with servants attending to His every need or desire. Rather, He was born into a, a humble family. He grew up as a, a child in a small, insignificant town. He worked hard in the family business. This was true in His ministry. He wasn't sitting among the educated and the elite, teaching as a famous rabbi. He didn't use His miraculous powers for His own personal gain or acclaim. Instead, He went town to town, teaching and healing and feeding and casting out demons. I love the scene in Mark 4.38 where we find Jesus asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. Why was Jesus asleep in the boat in the middle of a storm? It's not rocket science, is it? It's because he was tired. It's because Jesus spent day after day serving others. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Truly, he served others sacrificially throughout his life, but he came not only to serve in his life, he came to be the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 foretold. He came to serve others sacrificially through his death. Jesus continues, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve in his life and ultimately he came to give his life. And notice the intentional words that Jesus chose. It says He came to give His life. Jesus willingly laid down His life. It was not taken from Him. It wasn't that the Romans or the Jewish leaders won. Jesus gave His life voluntarily, willingly. Why? Why did He willingly die? It says He gave His life a ransom. This is a 
word that was typically used of the payment that was given to free a slave. could also be used of, of freeing a captive soldier or even to buy back a life from the death penalty. It's a word that's used sparingly in the New Testament, but it is closely connected to the idea of redemption or release that we see really throughout the pages of Scripture. You see this connection in, uh, in Exodus chapter 21. Turn back there, Exodus 21, verse 28. This connection between a ransom and redemption. A slave or a life in the Old Testament was redeemed by a ransom payment. Exodus 21 is a portion of the law that was given to Israel and It says this, beginning in verse 28, it says, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. It says there's two scenarios where an ox kills someone. It's one where a ox randomly does this. There was no evidence it would do that. And the ox is killed and the owner is not held responsible. But if the ox has demonstrated this pattern and the owner has been warned and yet he doesn't do anything about it and that ox gores someone, not only is the ox to be killed, but the owner is as well because they're liable for that death. But notice verse 30. It says, if a ransom is demanded of him or laid on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Since there's another option as opposed to this man being put to death, that is the payment of a ransom. A ransom could be paid to redeem his life, whatever was demanded of him in this situation. So that ransom payment was to buy back his life. It was to be released from the death and to be granted life. That's the picture here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus' death was the ransom payment to purchase our redemption. We deserved death. He bought us life. Ephesians 1.7 puts it this way, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now we typically think of a ransom as being paid to the bad guy in our day and age. If you've heard that term much, it's probably in the context of like a, a kidnapper or someone who's taken someone hostage and they're demanding a ransom. Some have taught that Christ paid a ransom to Satan, to the bad guy, to buy us back, but that is not what the Scriptures teach. The payment was not to Satan. The payment was to God. Isaiah 53.10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, it was God the Father whose justice had to be satisfied. It was God the Father who crushed the Son. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had forsaken him because he was treating him as a sinner. Jesus was a guilt offering offered to God, this verse says. Just like the Old Testament sacrifices were offered to God to appease his wrath, so Jesus offered himself as the ultimate and final sacrifice. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, payment for our redemption, and it says he came to give his life a ransom for many. Now, that word for in English can have a lot of different connotations or senses, but this particular Greek word that's translated for really only means in the place of or on behalf of, in exchange for. It's a clear declaration of Jesus' death as a substitute. Jesus was the ransom payment in the place of what we deserved as sinners. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what Jesus did. That's how he served in his death. He took the place. He substituted in place of sinners. God treated him on the cross as if he was a sinner when he was not so that he can treat us who are sinners as if we are righteous even though we are not. But not all sinners. It says he died in the place of many he offered himself, he was a, gave his life a ransom for many, for a multitude. It wasn't a one-for-one one exchange. It wasn't Jesus' one life in the place of one sinner. It was for a multitude of sinners, but not for all. The Scriptures clearly teach that not all will be saved. Only those whom God has chosen who respond to the universal offer of the gospel in repentance and faith will be saved. You know, regardless of one's view of the extent of the atonement, which is a, a topic for another sermon, preferably by Tom, um, the, the scripture is clear that as the God-man, Jesus' death was certainly sufficient to pay for the sins of all. Jesus is the eternal God. His sacrifice was sufficient for all, but the payment for sin accomplished by Christ's death is only applied to or effective for those who come to him in faith. Beloved, if you have never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, you will one day face God's just wrath for your sin. You will bear that alone. But if you come humbly in faith, your ransom will have been paid. You will have that redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
Jesus came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But don't forget the context here. Jesus is not simply saying this so that we will glory in the amazing sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, though that is a, certainly an appropriate response to this text. He's not simply saying this so that we will understand what his death accomplished on our behalf, though this certainly does that. He is saying this in the context of putting off our own selfish ambition and imitating his self-sacrificing service in our lives. This is a consistent connection that the Scriptures make. Jesus does it here. Paul did it clearly in Philippians 2. We looked at a couple of those verses last week where Paul said to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, not most things, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't think about life as all about you. It's about Christ. Think about it about others. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. We all do that, but look out for the interests of others. And he continues, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's why we're to think that way. That's why we're to live that way, because that's exactly what was true of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of what? Of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. He came not to be served, but to serve. He condescended to come to this earth as a man, though he is God. And he came not just as a man, but to serve and to die for us. Paul continues, for this reason also God highly exalted him. Jesus is recognized as the greatest because he's God, yes, but because he pictured this self-sacrificing service as well. You know, this isn't the last time in Mark 10 that Jesus would seek to teach his disciples this lesson. You know, it's a short time later at the Last Supper in John chapter 13, if you want to flip over there, that Jesus again reminded them of this important priority for those who are part of his kingdom, who are followers of him. And he gave them his own example again of, of what it means to sacrificially love and serve others. John 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was, had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. This was the, the lowest act of a servant, a task that no master, no teacher would ever 
would ever do, and yet Jesus is doing this to his disciples. Peter exclaimed, Lord, do you wash my feet? What are you doing? They had an exchange about the significance of this, and verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? It's interesting, it doesn't record a response. You know, having spent years arguing about who's the greatest, you can picture the disciples just kind of looking down, maybe finally getting this lesson and realizing how wrong they had been in their perspective for so long. This is what Jesus had been trying to teach them. He said in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. That's the lesson Jesus wanted his disciples to take, and it's the lesson that he wants us to take, a lesson about what true greatness in the kingdom of God is. Muhammad Ali said, I am the greatest. Jesus says, not in my kingdom. Greatness in my kingdom is self-sacrificing service. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many.